welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for joining us. We so appreciate your taking time out of what I know is a frenetic schedule and your run-up to your uh, assumption of the presidency of the court. And we're just so grateful that you've made time to visit with us and give us an opportunity to explore with you a little bit. I know that you are uh, really flooded with folks uh, wanting to speak to you and about your plans for the ICC and the future and so on. And indeed, we do want to speak to you about that. But I thought that it really, I think, a very special point in your career. And I thought that it would also be interesting to our listeners to uh, sort of take a moment and hear you you sort of pause and, and reflect a little bit about the path that brought you here. So our thought is to have a two-part podcast, the first one uh, looking at at reflecting, if you would, on your career path and advice that you might have for advocates and arbitrators. And then the second part of the program, uh, we would talk about thoughts on on the state uh, and uh, the future of international arbitration and the ICC going forward. So if that's okay with you, then I'll jump right into it. Does that work? Sounds great. And Jose, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor. And I'm just so happy to be here with you and Reed Smith. By all means, the honor is ours, believe me, Claudia. And in particular, I mean that you're you're about to assume a, a global leadership position with extraordinary influence on international arbitration. So we're truly just so pleased to have the opportunity to hear your thoughts on the, the many important questions that face the international arbitration community. But as I said, I, I, I in particular would love, obviously I've known you for a long time, Claudia, I in particular would love to sort of take a moment just to pause on a personal level and, and just hear a little bit about your career path, because I, I, I know there are lawyers and arbitrators out there that are looking for role models and, and things to learn. So my first question is, how did you wind up becoming an arbitration lawyer? Well, I didn't take any international arbitration classes in law school, and it wasn't something I started doing when I first started practicing as a lawyer. Jose, do you know the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft? I, I do. I do indeed. So I think of the start of my career uh, very much tied to the famous line in The Graduate, plastics, you know, mm-hmm. where uh, the advice of the future offered to a young Dustin Hoffman. And in 1998, when I moved to Phoenix, Arizona, I interviewed with a variety of firms and the head of litigation of Squire Sanders at that time in one of the interviews said to me, that international arbitration was the wave of the future. And that made sense to me. It met in the context in which there was going to be more cross-border business, more cross-border trade. There would also be more cross-border disputes and international arbitration would be the method for resolving those disputes. And so while I continued doing work as a commercial litigator and really getting grounded 
in the fundamentals of litigation, I also began to do some international arbitration work. And the real turning point for me and my career was in the fall of 2001, just a few months after September 11th, when I had the opportunity to go to Prague in the Czech Republic. My firm had been hired by the country in what was then, I believe, the largest investment treaty case, Saluka versus Czech Republic, arising out of the failure of one of the largest Czech banks. And I went to Prague on five days notice, originally for a month, and stayed for three years. Oh, my goodness. And and handled international arbitration cases all over Europe. I remember flying specifically from Dublin to Athens for two different client meetings in a day, you know, which was really as far as you could go in the Eurozone. And my last summer there, I had three arbitration hearings in three months on three different cases. And so it really gave me an incredible amount of grounding in both investment treaty cases and commercial arbitration cases. And from Prague, I came to New York in 2005 and practiced at two major law firms, first DLA Piper, and then Latham and Watkins as the global co-chair of the practice for a total of 16 years. Interesting, interesting. You know, you, you go back to, you know, plastics. I'm thinking if you think about the timing of that, of course, Na- of when you got the original advice in the late 90s, of course, NAFTA had been signed, you know, in the in the early 90s. And then you also had all the BITs that were being signed, particularly in Latin America. So I, I could see exactly what, what you would mean about it being, quote, the future. So that, that's really interesting. Now, let me ask you, have you been a disputes lawyer your entire career? As yes. opposed to, you know, corporate and then switching? Uh, Yes, I've always been focused on disputes and litigation. When I was in law school and first starting out, I was actually very focused on election law and voting rights in a context, (laughs) you know, in a time when no one had heard of a Chad and voting and election law was not even something taught at most law schools. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and returned to Richmond after law school and worked in one of the largest Virginia-based firms and did commercial litigation, but also with a focus on local government and elections and voting rights issues. Interesting. Boy, that that would be a whole interesting conversation in and of itself. And in some (sighs) respects, you know, one could say it's a complete uh, shift, but there have been two great links in my mind. The first is I, you know, kind of went from representing the town of Colonial Beach to, you know, in Virginia, to the city of Phoenix, to, you know, the country of the Czech Republic to bring in claims against other uh, sovereigns. But it really has been that intersection of law and politics or law and government, you know, cases involving... You bet sovereign entities or state entities. And then the other piece is the last two years of my work at Latham and Watkins, I was lead on the largest pro bono case handled by the firm, which was a Voting Rights Act case. So I got back into voting issues and we successfully brought a claim as co-counsel with the New York Civil Liberties Union 
assuring that the structure of a school board was in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. Fascinating. I, I did not know that aspect of, of your career. I mean, truly, it would be very, very interesting to pursue that. Given the limited time, I'll, I'll, sure. I'll come back. I think I, know, I would know the answer, but if you had the opportunity to, quote, do it over again, would you change anything to what brought you to where we are today? I would have learned languages much earlier. I have just spent the last 16 weeks doing intensive French every day. And I have to believe it would be a lot easier if I were younger. And uh, I was actually studying Spanish when I was living in Phoenix and was just about to learn the past tense when I had the opportunity to go to Prague. So I've always joked, I think, you know, had the ability to consider the present and the future in Spanish, but definitely not the past. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, listen, that, that's that's good advice. It's one that uh, certainly resonates with me as someone that, quote, spoke French when I got out of university in particular. I One of my regrets is that, uh, unfortunately, it's just faded and I just lost it over the years because I just did not have the occasion to use it. So can identify with it with that. Let me now talk about, well, let's talk a little bit about the future and you personally. How much time will the presidency take, Claudia? It will definitely be my primary responsibility and my primary focus in order to assure the success of the ICC. That really will take that dedication and focus. I will maintain my independent arbitrator practice while serving as the president of the ICC court. And just given the history of Alexi Moore and predecessors, also having an independent arbitrator practice, I'm confident that's doable. And and what type of cases interest you? I have really had and hope to have a wide variety of cases. I just got appointed as the chair of a case involving LNG take or pay contract. I have just been appointed as a co-arbitrator in a major mining case. I have extensive experience with energy disputes, not surprising given how many energy disputes there are in international arbitration. I have a lot of experience involving wide variety of technology and really complex financial agreements. Well, and it's interesting you would mention that because, of course, you co-chaired the ICC's task force on basically arbitration in the financial services industry, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Now, will you be moving to Paris? I hope so. That's certainly the plan. We'll see if it's exactly at the start of my term as of July 1 or how the pandemic will impact that as the vaccines are rolled out in France and the rest of Europe and the whole question of people beginning to work together in the same office evolves. So I will be in Paris and New York. And then hopefully, as the vaccine is rolled out around the world, have the opportunity to travel extensively as Alexi did before the pandemic and his predecessors, because while we have all this amazing technology in terms of connections and connecting, there's nothing like having a meal together or meeting face to face.
You bet. That, that is so true. Well, may it happen soon. Claudia, you know, you, you mentioned the 19, I think you sent 98 or 99, you got this, you know, great advice towards the future. Well, I'll, I'll now, you know, sort of switch the role that you play. What is your advice for, you know, aspiring arbitrators in terms of what the future holds? What is the plastics? What, what advice do you have for them? So one thing I've really enjoyed during these few months in the transition period is talking to so many people around the globe of different generations and making sure that I'm getting feedback and perspectives from the aspiring arbitrators as well as the longstanding ones, because I have been able to learn a lot from them as well. But in terms of my advice right now, it's actually very practical. I've talked to so many people who want arbitrator appointments. And for example, someone I spoke with last week said that she knows she's getting on a lot of short lists, but not getting the actual appointment and trying to figure out how to get, you know, clothes. And so I looked at her profile on the firm's website. And even though this person has great experience as an arbitrator, the website didn't mention it at all. It just Mm. described her as a international arbitration lawyer and focused on her counsel experience. And so I can understand why she wasn't getting the appointment because people were probably looking at that website in the first instance, and then not knowing Mm -hmm. if they didn't know her, know that she had that great experience. But that is just the tip of the iceberg or just one example of the many different situations I've been looking at over just even the last few months or the last year which is, you know, the challenge to self-promote mm-hmm. and accurately describe the really incredible experiences that you have. So, you know, to summarize all of that in a nutshell for aspiring arbitrators, it is that making sure that your public persona does in fact re- reflect your great experiences. And similarly, if you haven't yet applied to get on various panels, to actually take those steps. Um, Because again, I've talked to aspiring arbitrators and hearing their frustrations. And then Mm. there is, of course, the need to actually make sure they've got the credentials that they need. Mm, That's great advice. That is great advice. Now, let me ask you, you, you of course, have, have great experience as arbitrary, but of course, you also had great experience as an advocate. If you had to give advice to an aspiring advocate in international arbitration, any advice for them? If the advice is in the context of how to win a case, I would say focus on the issues in dispute. You know, what is it? that the arbitrator has to actually decide and help the arbitrator draft his or her award. You know, as you're thinking about your briefs and thinking about the presentation of the information, how can you actually make it easier so that the arbitrators can adopt and understand the arguments that you're making and how it gets to the heart of what they actually have to decide? 
sometimes I find as arbitrator now, the parties are like ships passing in the night. And mm. there really is that need to identify, well, what actually is the issue and dispute and have the parties hopefully come to an agreement on that. And it may be that the issues and dispute evolve as the case evolves, but making sure there's clarity on that list before the proceedings close so that the award can zero in on those issues. That is right on the money. As someone who functions primarily as, a, as, a, as an advocate, I, I can tell you, it's, uh, I see the, the great wisdom in what you're advising and uh, particularly the function of the two ships passing in the night sometime. Claudia, let us pass then to, to the second part. And thank you so much for sharing those personal side to your career, which I, much which I was not aware of and I'm very, very pleased to learn. Let's talk about the second part of our podcast, and that is the uh, your thoughts on the, on the state and the future of arbitration and the ICC going forward. So the first question I'll ask you is, uh, set aside investor state arbitration. Let's focus on commercial arbitration. Can you give us a sense and you know, your opinion of the state of international arbitration today. What I mean by that is uh, sort of its its health and robustness, future, and so on as a dispute resolution method. I think international arbitration as a method of resolving disputes will continue to gain popularity as there is a recognition, a continued recognition of the benefits of international arbitration globally. And uh, we've just seen the continued success of the New York Convention globally with now more than 160 signatories and even most recently Iraq announcing that it is signed the New York Convention. So I do see and anticipate the continued growth of international arbitration. I also anticipate that international arbitration will be important for disputes of all sizes. And one of the important imperatives, let's say, in the next stage of international arbitration is assuring that small and medium-sized enterprises or even micro-enterprises have the tools they need to resolve their cross-border disputes as well through international arbitration. Excellent. Now, so it, it, it sounds like obviously you see a very positive future for international arbitration. What are the three biggest challenges you, you see facing international arbitration today? Well, Alexi Moore, as the current president of the ICC court, really focused his terms on the legitimacy of international arbitration in terms of issues of transparency, issues of ethics, and focus on diversity of international arbitration. And I would say that those issues are still key priorities for international arbitration generally. Uh, There's still a need to focus on transparency. It is ethics and diversity. Those three pillars are essential to responding to the expectations of the parties. And when I think about transparency, 
one of the important aspects, for example, is the arbitration rules themselves. You know, someone commented to me recently that the rules seem to be changing so quickly, or do we really need to have all these details in the rules? Or, you know, why does the why are the rules setting out how the ICC court will address certain things, you know, the powers of the court. And to me, this these amendments and these details are not about giving more power to the institutions or about being more regulated. What it is actually doing is giving clarity to the parties about how the arbitration will operate and what the arbitral institutions will do, rather than there being ambiguity or a sense that, well, only if you're in the know, are you actually in the know. Mm -hmm. So I don't, uh, so, you know, you asked about the three biggest challenges. I think those three issues, generally diversity, ethics, and transparency, continue to be an important focus of assuring the legitimacy of international arbitration. Claudia, very interesting. Thank you for that. At this point, we're going to take a break uh, and uh, give our, our listeners a brief intermission. And we're going to pick up part two right where we've left off. So you've just shared with us in response to the question of what are the three main challenges facing international arbitration. You've mentioned to us uh, uh, Lexi's uh, three values that uh, he espoused during his tenure and those being very, very important on diversity, ethics, and transparency. And so we're going to pick up that part two exactly where we've left off, but I'll be asking you what uh, particular uh, issues or, or challenges or, or different dimensions you might be bringing to your presidency in addition to the three uh, drivers that uh, Alexi identified and you've shared with us. So uh, folks, uh, we'll look forward to resuming the interview here shortly. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.